You're listening to Experts in Their Field, a podcast from the Agricultural Science Association. Hello, my name is Tommy Boland, Agricultural Science Association President. Welcome to the latest installment of the ASA podcast, Experts in Their Field. In this episode, Odile Evans, ASA Council Member, interviews former Irish Farmers Journal Tillage Editor, Andy Doyle. Andy has recently retired after 33 years working with the Irish Farmers Journal. The Wakeford native shares insights into his long-standing career in agricultural journalism, as well as his busier-than-ever retirement. Andy graduated in the 1970s during a very exciting time for agriculture in Ireland. A phone call around that time from Professor Raymond Gallagher encouraged him into tailage research. Following this, Andy worked on trials in lines where he obtained a master's degree and spent 10 years in research and education in University College Dublin. On behalf of the ASA, I would like to thank Andy for his time and his contribution to our podcast series and wish Andy and his family continued health and success. Hi, my name is Odile Evans um, on the ASA Council and um, today I am interviewing someone who needs really no introduction, uh, but as we're on a podcast, I suppose you do. Uh, it's Andy Doyle, uh, former tillage editor of the Irish Farmers Journal. Andy, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Odile. Um, so I, when you uh, retired from the Farmers Journal towards the end of last year, you did a podcast with your colleagues in the Farmers Journal about you know, the evolution of the tillage industry and changes in science. But I suppose for our listeners today, we hope to look at maybe you, your career, and, and, and how you got to where you are today. So maybe could you take us back to uh, the end of the group in Wexford, tell us a little bit about where you came from. I can indeed. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a, a place called Haggard Ramsgrange. That was my home address. Went to school in Ramsgrange, uh, National School. Uh, spent a little bit of that time, actually, in National School in Connemara, like Fowlham Gaelia. And uh, went on from there to St. Peter's College. But I can assure you that either from National School or St. Peter's College end, I never had any intention of going to university. Uh, I'm a mistake uh, if, if, if push comes to shove. And I guess it's, uh, it's probably a reasonable example for anybody trying to design their career. But sometimes if you go to the floor, it'll work out better because it becomes more organic. It becomes more comfortable, arguably, because you have choices you can make. And uh, therefore, you can really look back with it. Uh, I think, a long career of service in whatever places you choose to do it. I don't think anybody ever really knows exactly where they want to be at any point in life. Well, maybe maybe some people do, uh, but maybe it's not where they should be. And I've heard so many people say that in recent times that, um, you know, wh- where I've ended up wasn't where I was going, but I'm certainly glad I ended up there. And I am certainly one of those people now. Good, glad to hear it. <laughs> um, and you came from a farming background? Yeah, uh, my, my dad and mum were mixed farmers, uh, as in, I suppose, typical of the time, a bit of dairy, uh, beef, sheep, uh, and even pigs in the early days, and of course, hens and ducks. And they all formed part of what was a relatively common uh, farming practice at the time. In other words, the farms were largely self-sufficient in food, or could be self-sufficient in food. And uh, I'd nearly be surprised now if very many farmers out there at all could provide hardly any of their own food if push comes to shove. And that's not necessarily the best place to have agriculture today. Very commercial. Yeah. And you, did you ever see yourself farming? Yes, that was, that was why I wasn't going to university. Yeah. Uh, no, I was, I was a farmer in my head and uh, a lot of other things like that. 
Um, and, uh, you know, to the point that when I was finished in secondary school, I went uh, to Ag College in Kildalton, mm-hmm. uh, a year that I really, really enjoyed because that when I moved from academics to uh, or, or an academic education to an agricultural education, kind of began to come into my own. I really enjoyed Kildalton. I spent as much time probably showing other guys what we were learning as I did learning myself. Just love learning about agriculture. And uh, when I was there, I still hadn't changed my mind about university, but some of the, the lecturers there at the time twisted my arm to apply for a Department of Agriculture Scholarship, which were there at the time to send a relatively small number of people to agriculture uh, to study agriculture in university. It was UCD was really the only one at the time. And, um, you know, I, I kind of almost reluctantly did it because it just seemed like if, if your lecturers wanted you to do it, then you should. Um, and uh, I ended up being accepted. Uh, had to come to Lyons for a day to do some kind of an oral. I can remember getting there, but I don't remember answering too many questions. Uh, and uh, it kind of from there, the, the other thing I remember is that the year that we started, and that was 1974, UCD was on strike yeah. uh, in the back end. So we were a month late starting off, um, which... I won't say it made first year any easier, but first year, I think for near, I presume it's the same still, it was basically a science year to try and get everybody onto a common level of basic science. And I had done physics and I had done uh, biology, uh, but not chemistry. And I had done maths. So they were the four main subjects at that time in year one. And uh, it, it, it stood to me, I think, through first year because I found the chemistry tough going. Uh, probably as much to do with the standard and style of lecturing as anything else. And that also probably held for all of the uh, the, the, the science subjects at the time. That you were dealing with people whose profession was the subject matter, not whose uh, um, career was to try and teach it. And they gave solid principles, but it was quite difficult to stay with them. Quite high level. Really going in at that stage. Well, it, it wasn't that high level, but they taught them in a way that was so different to what we were learning in secondary school that even when you were learning the same thing, you just began to ask yourself, uh, is this the same thing that I'm supposed to know or not? And that, of course, generates real panic around exam time. <laughs> <laughs> what is the answer to this question going to be? Is it the one I learned in secondary school or the one I think I learned here? Yeah. And, and how did you find, like, doing exams? Did you say when you get, went to the law, and you know, you, you felt like you'd hit your niche? Did you feel that way at UCD? No, no, exams were always pressure. If, if, if exams are not pressure, you're probably not pushing yourself. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the summary that I would give it. Um, no, you could quite simply, exams were pressure. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, slogging done in advance. But what we had, we had a great class. Uh, uh, going through college and we had the same class give or take a few that dropped out for first and second year but then we split completely because in for those that started in 74 it was the introduction of a new curriculum in the agricultural um, uh, agenda and um, because of that those people who had not cleared their practical agricultural education they were always pulled out after second year before they could go to third to do the experience for one whole year. And uh, when, when the year that started in 73 had done that and come back, they were on a different trajectory. They were on a different course, quite a different course in actual fact. 
we shared some lectures, but in the main, they had a different course. So we were 60 odd in the class. There was 30 odd of us in what we call the new regs, which was the new regulations, which is what we called it. And then there was about the same amount on the other side. And um, it, it's, it split us to some degree. Um, we shared the exam slots in, in fairness, but they could be getting a different paper to us. And that's really what it was. Because at that stage, agriculture had only one exam in final year. And that was in September. So your lectures finished in May, and your exams were in September. And the whole <laughs> summer was there. And you know, in the lead into that, we then were the first year to have had Christmas exams. And uh, the Christmas exams in year one and year one only took place after Christmas. Uh, thankfully, we managed to persuade the authorities to bring them before Christmas. And I think that's part and parcel of the reason why a lot of uh, courses kind of got brought forward and you were back to college that little bit earlier to accommodate that. And that was far more sensible. After Christmas was a bugger. I was just thinking that it ruined your summer. Like, how do you do like, the harvest or anything if you're waiting for an exam in September? And that's exactly what it was. And there was no other exam in the year. So they had no Christmas exams. They only had one final year exam at the end of it. And exams at that time, all exams were accompanied, uh, written were accompanied by orals. Um, and orals were a great reason to fear, you know, the, because now you're going to make a shame of yourself in front of the person that's marking your paper. And you always thought that one could influence the other. But in actual fact, orals to me became very important uh, because they became the place where your lecturers got to know you. And I don't know if very many uh, people recognize it today, but, you know, I, I'm doing uh, a little bit of lecturing here in, in UCD and I've had, uh, I've had a, a lot of occasion to, um, you know, to be in front of people. Sometimes the numbers are very, very small and this year now they're, they're quite good. Um, but I just wonder, do people there realize that I could be the fella on the other side of the interview table? And, uh, you know, if somebody is saying that they did a course and they did whatever and they've never seen the face before, it doesn't exactly stand to them. One of the things that we were very good at, O'Deal, going through college, uh, maybe, maybe to the annoyance of lecturers at the time, uh, but we were very good at uh, following a principle that I tell any student today. If somebody tells you something, you write it down and you try and deal with it and you try and rationalize it in your mind and you go back and you're, you're reviewing your notes ahead of a lecture or ahead of a, an exam and you're writing it down again and can I make this make sense? I've always told people, you know, if you ask a question, you remember the answer. You never have to go back on it again if you're, if you're, in, if you're uh, tuned in enough to ask a question. And I encourage that everywhere all of the time. And uh, there was a gang of us that used to always descend after every lecture, no matter what lecture it was, we just descended on the lecture to ask about this, that, and the other. And I can remember well one day, I think it was in second year, coming out of a biochemistry lecture. And uh, the lads, some of the lads that knew a little bit more than chemistry, uh, more about chemistry than me, uh, just made the comment that, uh, you know, what's happening in, in what you said on the board now? What happens if you break the cycle? And just like that, in the questions afterwards, where he said, if that cycle gets broken, that's ketosis. Mm -hmm. So now that was the first time, and I'm like, I'm remembering that since 1975, probably. That was the first time that the chemistry actually turned into practical agriculture. And from there on, learning was something you wanted to do more of yeah. all of the time. Mm -hmm. And that literally was one of those eureka moments that I guess nearly everybody has at some stage. 
And I guess it's quite an exciting time to be studying agriculture at UCD in the 70s in Ireland. You know, politically, it was yeah. a big, a big time We had joined Europe and uh, the world was our oyster and uh, all all of the different enterprises, they were all going through a, a really, um, a, a great time of optimism, right? a time of great optimism, whichever way we would call it. You know, we were seeing land prices rise, people's assets were rising, but the biggest one, people's incomes were rising. And of course, rising in- income then drives further production and further production drives more cost. And while, while a lot of people would blame the modern era for the high cost, we actually introduced an awful lot of costs in that era that I won't say could be done without, but I'd say if we were sensible at the time, we might have addressed them in a different way so as not to be trapped in this high cost production system that we're in today. How do you compare the volume in agriculture in the 70s compared to, say, what students coming through UCD now would be doing? Well, I don't know what the guys coming through now are feeling or the. Yeah, look, I think if you if you just take the vibe of agriculture as as what they're in, what's influencing them in terms of coming in here, um, you know, people are looking at a time of massive change. They're looking at restrictions coming in all over the place. They're looking at environmental controls coming in all over the place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Back then, it was just drive on. You know, how to get more. You know, the old adage, if a man can make two uh, blades of grass grow where only one grew before, it's a greater service to mankind than the combined efforts of every politician on earth. You know, that's a very old saying that still would be true. And it's arguably no less true today if you look at the dynamics of population growth and the fact that our global agricultural land base is decreasing all of the time, either through uh, industrialization, through domestication, or through um, um, land going back to um, desert, desertification. You know, all of those things that are eroding the land base substantially. For, for the past two decades, we've seen a significant return to agriculture uh, of land that was brought out of agriculture, either because of the communist era in the West or because of lack of development, say, in places like South America. But they've pulled a lot of land in and we criticise uh, people in Brazil, for example, for knocking down rainforests. And, you know, I look back at history books that says that uh, we were more than 50% tillage in Ireland once upon a time because more than 50% of the world, of uh, sorry, of the country uh, was under trees. You know, so I, I, I always turn back and ask the question, who are we to throw dirt at somebody else? You know, this is where we were. We're in a climate that naturally defaults to timber, and that's what was there before we started. It was progress. Yeah, it was. It was well. It was to feed people yeah. that lived. They were basically um, just um, hunter gatherers, and then when farming came into being, people just settled down in a patch and they used the patch as best they could, and uh, they cleared more land to grow more food, and that was just the way it was. And you know, we can say what we want about the past Brazilian regime uh, but you know they were of a political view or he was of a political view that Brazil was as entitled to have its agriculture and feed its people as anybody else on earth. Well coming back to you Andy by the time you were getting towards the end of UCD your time in UCD did you know what you wanted to do at that stage? No 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 I, I, no was the quick answer for the simple reason that I loved all of it you know I grew up on a mixed farm and about the only thing that I wouldn't have voluntarily done was to engage in pig enterprises. Yeah. 
And that's, that should not be seen as anything against pigs. It's just the natural preferences that people would have. But as I saw it when I finished, uh, I, I would have been well prepared to go into any one. And, and, you know, I suppose preferably all, because I see agriculture uh, today, as I always did, as a gearbox with a lot of different sprockets in it. And if you don't have all of those sprockets meshing, agriculture doesn't work well. And we're in that place today where agriculture is not working well in Ireland. Um, one enterprise is working very well, but there's no cognizance amongst an awful lot of the administration as to how it needs to work together to help resolve the problems, because what's one man's opportunity tends to leave problems behind. And if those problems are not being addressed somewhere else within agriculture, uh, then we know we have the, 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 the issues with the environment that we have today. And that they are real. You know, we can, we can hide all we want uh, from them. And, you know, I, I think that one could argue that uh, enterprises in the past have been too politically successful at uh, getting the political out rather than just addressing the problem. And that is also probably one of the reasons why farming is getting such bad press in, in certain quarters today. You know, we have not been proactive. We've not been seen to be proactive. We, we, we have been proactive, I'll quickly add. You know, we've done an awful lot in terms of changing how we do what we do over the last probably two decades that just goes unknown. Uh, because it's not there as part of a big, bright lights, uh, public media policy. But people have been changing the things they're doing. People are much more aware of the environment. And, you know, I will also come back over all of that era and say that what farming and farmers do today is what they were told to do by the research and advice that preceded those, those things. So I think it's completely wrong always to blame farmers for the practices that they've engaged in. With, with the odd exception of the ones that maybe go too far. Uh, so I, I always think that it's always about education, just telling people that this is what the problem is before you push the legislation on them or something else on them to try and change it. Because, you know, the vast, vast majority of farmers out there, they want to leave their farms and land in better condition than they got it. Now, we did go through a time when that wasn't the case. Farmers didn't know it, but it was happening. And that's why somebody like me would have for the past number of decades been kind of continuously harping on about soil health because that's where the productivity of our land comes from. It's not just the rainfall and it's not just the long days. They're, they're great assets that help us to get increased productivity. But if the land itself, the soil beneath our feet is not as productive as it can be, then that is putting the limit on the technology that we are pouring in. And that same, very same thing holds for loss of nitrogen compounds, uh, either into the air or into the ground, loss of phosphate, etc. You know, a lot of the origin of the problems comes from not paying enough attention. And, you know, we, we have practices now that are pushing land beyond what is safe to do with land for the environment. And that's something that we have to face up to. And I think I've heard you say before, Andy, that um, your kind of real grounding in soil science came from your education here and possibly on your attempts to your Probably more so here. Yeah. Indeed, it's some of the things that I've that I still remember about soil science I learned in ag science in secondary yeah. school. So that's that and, and that's strange. I was never told them in UCD yeah. because they were arguably so basic. But having those basics, I always say to somebody after a lecture, if you don't understand what I've said today, talk to me because if you don't understand it today, you won't be able to understand next week. 
and it's all everything kind of locks into something else. Yeah, I, I would regard myself and, and our era as being remarkably lucky, Odile, because I think it was something like seven different soil science lecturers we had going through, all of which dealt with various specific aspects of the science of soil. And uh, it was it was terrific. Uh, and I can remember like being a Wexford man and not really au fait with the soils of the Midlands, parts <laughs> of Kildare where I live now in the west of Ireland. And I remember the first day being brought to a bog. That's, oh, that's absolutely. Too, yeah. Yeah. Black soil. What's this? <laughs> well, that was okay until a couple of us acting the maggots, as fellas would do, just leapt over the top of the first cotton and then went to our oxters, uh, <laughs> arguably close to well above your knees when you landed at the other side. Uh, so that was a, a definite education in itself. Uh, no, it, it was it was fantastic. We got a great grounding in soil science, and I know that all of those good men uh, had, had all left, and, and the faculty here at, at UCD in particular was left with a, with a very sm small overall education in soils that really we can't afford in science. And um, you know, I, as I look in at, at education today, I think an awful lot of the education is grounded around trying to give farmers the answers they need tomorrow morning. Uh, I would not regard that as a satisfactory third level education. Um, because agriculture will always keep changing. The ground rules keep changing. And without the good understanding of science, people may not have what it takes to be flexible, to bend in the wind, to see around the corner, and to be able to give advice, not just for tomorrow, but for 10 years down the road as well. And so much of that uh, will always be influenced by environment in Europe going forward. And a lot of that is going to be influenced by soils. Because soils just have the key to so many different things. Brings back to you again, Andy. You say you didn't know what you wanted to do when you were leaving UCD, but it was a phone call, was it from a lecturer that kind of put a steer in your career? Yeah, you, you asked me that question a few minutes ago, I did, yeah, and yeah, I steered, yeah, yeah. I steered very clear of it very quickly. Yes, uh, you know, I, 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 I loved all aspects of agriculture, and literally it was uh, a phone call from Eamon Gallagher uh, after the uh, exams and exam results were out to ask me if I would come back and do a master's degree that literally put me on the road that I spent the following 45 years on. And uh, whatever more years are in it as well, I'm, I'm not abandoning the sector. And it, it was as simple as that. I, I would say the next day or maybe later on the same day, uh, I got a phone call from, from the then uh, Professor Shane Sheehy, Lord of Mercy on him, and uh, who knows what would happen if that had to be the first phone call. Uh, you know, I just, you, you never know. I, I don't know if I would have gone that road because I was a guy that always liked dirt under my nails and I liked feeling and smelling the soil and I loved the challenge of of, um, of growing things, I suppose, because at the end of the day, you can say you grow cows, you grow beef, but ultimately it all starts with grass and it all starts with something growing in the ground. 80% of the world's food is produced off land. Uh, the other 20% is coming off the sea. So you, you did your master's then specifically in tillage, was it out in Oak Park? Or? No, no, in, in Lyons Estate. Oh, I did a master's in the precision drilling of, uh, of cereals, uh, which is kind of a euphemism because it's technically impossible to do, uh, <laughs> because you can't put the uh, cotyledon end on every seed pointing in the same direction. Yeah. So when they come up, even if you precision plant them, they come up all over the place, within, within reason. Um, and I then went on to do a PhD in uh, plant establishment and uh, to try and discover lots of the different things and challenges that were there. So again, 
while it wasn't soils based, it was a complete interaction with the soil because you put a seed in there and you have to try and begin to understand the various things that are stop it from growing or establishing. So that's from pest to, to fertilizer to a whole pile of different things. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, never wrote it up um, uh, because I suppose I was having too much fun because at the end of my master's, when I went back to do the PhD, I ran the uh, cereals research center at Lions Estate. And that was just such an education in itself. You know, anything that you wanted to know, you began to put in trials to take a quick look and see. So it was really broader than your own masters. You, it, you, were, you were doing a lot of different... This was everything to do with the evolution, the technological evolution of cereal production, which had been sparked in the 70s by two uh, well-known figures from Europe, uh, Herman Effland and uh, Professor Lou in Belgium. And they had kind of forced a, a system of production. In other words, you do this and you do that and you do the other. And this is the recipe for the high yields. And of course, that's what everybody wanted. Mm -hmm. And we had to tweak all of those things for the system that suited best in Ireland. And even arguably for areas within Ireland. And oh, that was a great thrill. I absolutely enjoyed every single minute of that. So would you have stayed there? What, what I, I possibly would have stayed there, but my time there was... Um, funded by external external funding. And uh, I was a, an assistant lecturer at the time, and that was never uh, formalized in any way. Uh, because, you know, times were changing as we got into the 80s, sorry, particularly into the 90s. And I was kind of told that, you know, the funding isn't going to keep coming. But it was probably ironic at the time that while I was funded, I think originally by the Irish Flour Millers Association, and then the whole flour milling industry died, uh, subsequent to that, I was funded by, you know what, I'm less than certain who it was, but I kind of think it was the Agricultural Trust. It was one of the trusts out of the farm centre, which would have meant that the Agricultural Trust has paid me all my working life. Yeah? Yeah. Well. If I, it, You know, that's purely ironic if it happens that way, but I think it was the uh, Ag Trust at the time that funded my, my remaining years in UCD. But you didn't go straight into the Agricultural Trust after you finished academia? No, no, but, but the Agricultural yeah. Trust paid me when I was doing yes, the PhD yeah, yeah. and all of that research work. Yeah. So from there on, at the end of that then, when I had when the decision was made to leave there, when the decision was kind of made that I was going to have to leave, to be more precise, then I very luckily got a phone call one day to know if I would be interested in going to the journal. So, you know, this is where, in a sense, I, I've never done an interview in my life, uh, Odile. Uh, no, I, I can't say headhunted either. No, I was never that valuable to anybody. Uh, but uh, I, I did like what I was doing, and uh, I was a person that just liked getting stuff done. Yeah, but you were open to where life was taking you. you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, able to experience it. I went with the flow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and enjoyed it, and it was kind to me along the way yeah. also. Uh, like I always, for me personally, and I know other people are different, for me it was much more important to enjoy every day's work than to be making a pile of money. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, I, I can remember taking one of my children to a, a, an ex, uh, not an ex science, but a career teacher uh, many years ago and just started off the conversation by saying, if you can find what you like, you'll never have to work. And I've had that great joy in my career. Just loved what I was doing. Now, some of the deadlines felt a bit like work. I'll quickly add to that. Uh, and, and it was probably one of the great reliefs in January 2023 
after I retiring when these deadlines stopped. Yeah, but there'll do. always be deadlines, yeah. you know, there'll always be things that need doing. But I suppose uh, going into the Farmers Journal as well, it's, it's very different academia where you're to do your research is something for months and yeah, even years, and then all of a sudden you've got this every single Wednesday paper has to be ready. It is a big change, I suppose. Yeah, 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 no, it was a massive change. Yeah. I mean, I would honestly say to people, uh, academia is absolute worst place to start <laughs> if you're going to be a journalist. Yeah. Oh, the, the style of writing, writing up theses, it's just murderous. Mm. And I can remember the guys in there saying, what the hell are you doing with all those words? You know, and, and uh, I, I understand where they're coming from and I understand it from the point of view of the reader, etc. But as against that, I never wanted ever to write something that gave somebody the, the the possibility of misreading the advice they were being giving, because if they misread it, I'd given them bad advice in their head. So it always had to be well explained, uh, and uh, that was very much part of everything that I had done over the years. I found writing, probably up to the bitter end, but certainly for the first two decades, I was there tough. Yeah. Yeah. Just tough to get it right. Tough to find to write it and then rewrite it and get it into a way that that uh, would be um, acceptable to somebody who had to read it in a hurry yeah. because that's where everybody's life had gone to. Just trying to get through what you needed to know. It's also a bit of weight on your shoulders as well. You know that if someone takes your advice from that article and you know it doesn't go right, it's it's. It does weigh heavy on you. It would weigh heavy on me, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and very occasionally you get those comments. Very, very occasionally, uh, but but they're always likely to be there. Um, but to give that advice, and I think this is something that people might not recognise, but to give the advice either in an article in the journal uh, or in management week after week after week for for all of those years, um, to to give that advice, you must know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be on your bicycle, so to speak, traveling the country north to south so that you can know what is actually going on in different parts of the country. Now, you're not going to go to every single field down there, uh, but I always found over the years that what, when I went into a field, I saw something very different to what somebody else saw. And uh, that's why I always like to do it myself rather than ringing somebody up because they'll tell you, oh, look, this disease is getting bad, that disease is getting bad. But I've gone down to places where people said disease was getting bad, and I'm saying that's not disease. Mm. You know, and I will say that, I'll say I don't know what it is, but it's not a disease because it doesn't have these characteristics that go with it. And I think that's something that I probably got from all of my time in UCD. You knew to question things. And some of the stuff I remember we found in the late 70s vanished since the, since the late 70s, and it's back again for the last three years. You know, these are diseases that were there that vanished for whatever reasons, and they're back again, uh, specifically. And did you recognize it straight away? Oh, no, instantly, yeah. I, I sorry, I recognized the symptom, and I knew what I had been told, but you still have to go back and just recheck, is this what it is? Yeah. So that's back to the pathologist or in the country to do that. So really what you're saying is, in order to stay relevant throughout your career, and especially a career quite in the public eye, really, from the agricultural sphere, it's about having boots on the ground. You, there's no, absolutely no substitute to that. But it's it's to having boots on the ground. Like I know a lot of our lads kind of go to discussion groups here and there, and you can go to a relatively small number. But I could go to discussion groups as well. But that would never be enough for me. I still had to be on the individual farm. And I wrote a column on and off for years called In the Fields, whereby I'd go to an area of the country at any time of the day or week or night. Well, no, not night. 
um, and just literally jump gates and go to fields and just see what's going on. And most fields were good, so you generally wouldn't go into only one or two good ones because they were they were being well managed and you could see them. But the the, the poorer ones or the ones with spots and patches in them were a kind of a magnet for a fellow like me. What's going on? Uh, and uh, you know, you try and write that up accordingly. Then could you could you identify it? Could I not identify it? And and all of the challenges like that. And you know, there's been lots of those big issues over the past few years that have been. Um, yeah, they've been they've been challenging. They've been challenging for us all, and they're particularly challenging as we're losing the the uh, the tools in the toolbox, the chemical tools in the toolbox. But you know, I I will certainly say at this point in time that we became too dependent on them, and we must look towards other ways of either reducing dependence or even eliminating some of them. And for my time as a farmer, because I became a farmer in the middle of all of this as well, looking after the farm to be more precise. Um, the objective always was to try and see what we could do without. Could I find a way to drop this input or that input or the other input? And I've done probably quite a reasonable job at doing away with some of these things, but none of them are short-term solutions. Mm. You know, I was 30-odd years trying to get rid of wild oats out of a farm, and the starting point on that farm was, was cultivation. And that autumn when we cultivated that farm of land, it was between six and eight hundred wild oat plants per square meter on the ground that back end, and again you learn from that. You learn to kind of get kindness into the soil because if I can get kindness into the soil, um, I can get more of them to grow every time I cultivate. And cultivation costs less. If soil is soft and nice and loose. You can pull a cultivator through it with less diesel. Sure, well, but there's, look at it, there's no, there's no, absolutely no um, secret to getting rid of wild oats. You know, everybody over the world has done it. You have to grow out the seed population yeah. and stop the seed return. It's as simple as that. The same goes for every single weed on earth. Stop the seed return and grow out the, grow out the seed bank. Andrew, just, you know, you've been in the farmer's journal, what was it, 32 years? Did 33. Started, 30. Jan started January 1, finished December 31st. And I suppose I witnessed a decade where radical change. You must have seen a big change in you know, the journalism space while you were there. What would, what would be the biggest changes that, for you that in the challenge, shall we say? In the space of journalism, um, look, at having come from UCD, uh, even at that stage, like the computers weren't, weren't common. You know, uh, I think in, in Lions Estate, because I, I did most of my work in Lions Estate, uh, there was one computer, and there we used that computer. Well, there was one computer with direct contact to Belfield, mm. to, to UCD HQ, and, and there, was, there was a single uh, piece of software for analysis, and we had to put in the, um, the data there in Lions Estate, digit by digit by digit, to get it into Belfield to get this stuff analysed. And that might not seem like a big deal today because it was only a literal matter of pushing it up the line, except for every bloom and wet day there was, this thing wouldn't work. <laughs> or you might have three quarters of the data gone in, pains in your fingers, and the next thing the whole thing crashes and then everything is gone because there wasn't an autosave facility on it. And they discovered years later that the reason for it was somebody had shot a crow off of one of these big telephone wires, the big fat telephone wires, and the water just got in. Every time there was rain, and that's how how fickle you know. I mean, yeah. Nowadays we're in Wi-Fi yeah. and all that goes with it. But if I, if I go from there then back into journalism, which is the question you asked, um, when I arrived into the office in in the Farmers Journal, 
I had a, a keyboard and a screen that had green color on it. It wasn't a computer. Basically, it was a word processing unit. And you could use this to input words and get them to show on the screen. But you get a paragraph marking. That's about the only formatting you could get. So it wasn't too long when I pushed out the boundaries of it. And I ended up with two actual computers on the desk beside me and uh, quickly put the other green thing to one side because I could do it on, on Microsoft Word. And I, was, I still worked in Microsoft Word to the day, still, still doing it today, still, still using Microsoft Word for anything that we do. Um, and uh, find a way then of getting that into the old system. And look, at, I, I was handy enough around computers all my life. I can still do virtually anything I want to do, but there's lots of things I don't want to do. Yes. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's the way I would do it. I, can, I could probably show people lots of shortcuts and lots of ways to do things that maybe they don't know. Well, you were able to show me how to add those things on each other. Um, but so, yeah, you obviously cracked the computers here. <laughs> I, I, can, I can handle computers pretty well for to do what I want to do or need to do. Yeah. 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 And Andy, you've been very involved in the Irish Tillage and Land Use Society as well. Uh, maybe you could just touch off that and, and how you got involved with it. I got involved because people in UCD had, had always been involved. So people that preceded me, like Paddy Barry, Trevor Story, on the Tillage side, they'd always been involved with it. And basically they... I won't say twisted my arm, they held my hand and took me in. Uh, I don't, can't remember when that was originally, but it was a long time ago. Certainly back, I think, somewhere in the 80s. And um, absolutely enjoyed that. I enjoyed anything that involved the, the transfer of knowledge and information and the education of people for their betterment. I always enjoyed anything to do with that. So that was a great incentive to keep involved in it, uh, to keep a good program of events in front of farmers all the time. Farmers and industry, it didn't matter who it was, we were in industry, farmers and commercial people organization. Uh, and yeah, I'd been very active in that all of the years. I spent a, a while as president, as did many other people, uh, was secretary for a big number of years as well. And um, I think back in the, I know it was back in 1991, because I can still hear my, my wife giving out to me for all the meetings I was going to after our son been born. Uh, but I was president in, in that era, and uh, we had a fundamental root and branch um, analysis of what the Irish tillage and land use was and what it did. And we, we changed some things, uh, we introduced workshops, and we introduced, at that stage, a farm study tour into the programme of events. And um, thanks to the Farmers' Journal, very much thanks to the Farmers' Journal, uh, we had 16 farm study tours, one every two years for 30-plus for years. And uh, that really was a great grounding in the education of world agriculture. You got to see some far-flung parts of the world. We, we got to see some far-flung places, yeah, all in the name of agriculture, I'd quickly add. And, you know, when, when this, uh, we're now in February, this time last year, uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, it, it kind of stirred up some memories of the visits and the many visits that we had to Ukraine uh, back in 2008. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a really memorable visit at that time. And it, I suppose it became memorable and historic following the war. So there was lots of good stuff like that that we happened. We, we got into the Southern Hemisphere a number of times, got into South America, South America Brazil, Argentina, Chile. Uh, and I went personally from there on up into Peru because I had an aunt in Peru. We were down in South Africa. Um, Australia then was the last one in 2020. Yeah, so they were our three major stops in the Southern Hemisphere. The Southern Hemisphere 
was quite different because A, it was long haul. So you had to go for at least a fortnight to make the cost of the flight worthwhile. And indeed, we spent three, three uh, weeks in Australia when we went down there. But it was also different because we tend to go in the summer of our destination. Mm-hmm. So it brought us on a January tour rather than a June tour. Because when you're dealing with Tilly's farmers, you have to find slots that are relatively safe in terms of not having a, a potential workload because it would interfere with people's ability to go. And coming home from those trips, you know, what, what, what were your take-home messages? I don't say it would be different for every trip, but like, come back to Ireland, where was the tillage industry by comparison here to what it was in the places you've been to? The one thing that's kind of always stares you in the face is that we complain here like hell about having too much rain. Yeah. Every farmer in the world has a problem with the weather. And too much rain arguably is a better problem than too little, because too little occurs very often for the people that, that are short of rain nearly all of the time. So, you know, we, we, you learn that straight away. And in any conversation with a farmer, you very quickly get into that space about the challenges of trying to beat the weather matter what it is you're doing. We also have the great advantage of being a relatively small island. And we had the massive advantage that we don't recognize as a food producing country. uh, And in that we could actually square the circle on virtually all our inputs if we had a balanced uh, agriculture. And if we had that, then we could really put Irish beside our food and stand over it without fear or favor from somebody in our competition, somewhere else in the world saying, but, you know, where do you get your, your feed from? Where do you get your protein from? Where do you get your whatever from? And we can't, we can't stand behind that. And people would say, ah, no, I don't do that. I'm getting the Irish stuff. There's no way to verify the person uh, today that who's, who's using Irish only anywhere in the food system. And like, that's, an, that's a potential uh, strength that we could be utilizing that we're not utilizing. So that to me was one of the big ones because like I remember being in South America, um, uh, oh, so there, 2000, we were in South America, talking to a farmer. I'd say, I'd say he was a couple of hundred miles away from port. And at that stage, he told us that it was costing him $80 to move his grain from farm to port. $80 a ton. Um, and the value of the grain was $80. Uh, this year, um, this January of 2023, um, I had a conversation with a farmer who's farming in Ukraine and he told me that it's costing him 100 euro, 100 euro to move his grain to port. So we have this huge advantage that because of the, the integration of Irish agriculture, we could actually move all of the foodstuffs in around in a circular type economy for everybody's advantage. And you know, if you take, uh, I've come from Tillys, that's fair enough. But if I take the fact that, or look at the fact that so many good dairy farms are now going to be constricted and constrained by the the evolution of the nitrates directives and regulations that are there, you know, that people could still work to their maximum and just take their, their surplus nutrients off farm to another guy who could use them. Because in Tillage, all nutrient flow is one way. It's a bag in. And everything else goes out the gate. Yes. And I think one of the things that people probably, I won't say forget, but because they've never been told, is that every year a decent crop of grain is moving out uh, seven and a half tonnes of, of carbon per hectare. 
seven and a half tons of raw carbon without the gate. <clears throat> the Tilly sector can't afford to keep doing that because we're the people that can store more carbon and we need it in our soils. We need life in our soils. So there's great scope there for, for thinking people to begin to square the circle, so to speak, to begin to recognize the fact that this is how we can solve the problems of agriculture while still keeping a technologically efficient uh, agriculture walking along the way. And it definitely leads on nicely to where you are today. So retirement is uh, as busy as ever for you. As I gather, you're lecturing in UCD and with a fourth-year students. Yeah, look, it's it's great. I have I, I do some lectures on oilseed rape and on uh, on protein crops. Enjoy them. Um, it's kind of tough going to try and get everything said. Uh, within the time frame that's there, but look, I've probably had to get better at that over the years, whether it be a lecture or a space on a page, it's the same discipline. Um, yeah, the first couple of months have been phenomenally busy ordeal, um, but I do enjoy, there's probably a day a week where there's less pressure or no pressure. I actually enjoyed that. And I've no, I've no big desire to be uh, either idle or not involved. I, it is my absolute intention to stay involved in the uh, in the tillage sector and probably more so in the in the uh, the policy end to try and uh, push towards the targets that government has going forward uh, that's the that's the challenge that's there so um no i'm looking forward to that as well because look at we've we've an acknowledgement that tillage is important and i know why it's important because i've what what i've said a few moments ago has always been part of good agricultural practice but we forgot so much of good agricultural practice over the years for issues of convenience. It's easier this way, you know, in, in the tillage sector, we live on a, a, a bag or a bottle solution. And uh, we forgot about all of the other things. That's not sustainable in the long term. And sustainability is rightly a, a, a word that we need to be more conscious of going forward. And that involves a lot of different things. And it involves a change in the advice that's given and the direction of research as well. I'd love to talk to you all day, but we should probably come to an end. Just, and before we finish, um, maybe we could just touch off your sort of personal life, which is obviously a key part of your career as well. You would have been um, a big GA man back in the day, I suppose, as well. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I, I look at it uh, in, in, in my time as a, as a chap, um, you know, we didn't really have anything in national school. So I only started to, uh, to play GA football and hurling in St. Peter's College. So secondary school was when we started. I would never have said I had an ounce of skill towards what's out there today. Uh, but I wasn't a soft touch. That's probably ultimately what it comes down to. And uh, I can remember getting beatings and beatings and beatings from different clubs, uh, sorry, different colleges in the various things. And I kept saying, no, this isn't going to keep happening. You know, work and train and learn skills and all the rest that went with it. And by the time we were finished five years later, we won the Colleges All-Ireland. And not that many times, um, not that many colleges can win that. And uh, I can also say that's probably a, a note of sadness that that's 50 years ago now. And uh, we haven't won another one since. We were in one or two, but we haven't won another one. So... Um, that's another anniversary that has to be looked at fairly soon. <laughs> the fact that we're 50 years out of secondary school. Um, yeah, and after that then, I really enjoyed it. Played for Wexford at underage and uh, hurling and football and then stayed with the hurling at, at adult level. And uh, I was with Wexford only for a year, but I was 
I was there in 76 when uh, when Wexford got to the All-Ireland final and we were beaten by Cork. And look, those things are great. captain of that team. I was captain of the college's team. Captain of the college's team. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Look, won a few Fitzgibbons in the meantime at UCD as well, uh, which is, again, a big deal. It was a less big deal then than now because there was only the five universities at the time. But no, uh, GA was kind to me. And, you know, if you don't recognise the things that were kind to you along the way and give something back, you're not completing the circle. So I'm still involved in GA. At this stage, it's about trying to make grass grow and then having to cut it the next day. Uh, <laughs> and your sons would have been very involved. My sons, my sons, yeah, they were, they were both involved. One of them had to give it up for health reasons, but the, the other one is still uh, kicking football for Kildare. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, look at the GA, is good. I mean, it's a great organisation. We get out like think about it, which was something to talk about as well. Well, you probably help the move from Wexford to Kildare as well and having that community around you. Yes, uh, the community, the GA community is there for everybody, no matter where you go in the world. You know, whether you're here or in Australia, uh, if you link with the GA, you have something in common with an awful lot of people. Yeah, and uh, that's probably never going to change. At least I hope it doesn't. No, I would also say the same for any sport. I just love to see people involved in team sports. No difficulty with individual sports, but just if you play a team sport, it takes a lot of the corners off, and it's a good rounding of of people's careers. Yeah, yeah. Any sport tends to do that. Any sport will do that, yeah. Male, female, it doesn't matter. And uh, somewhere along the line, you felt time to settle down as well? Yeah, I suppose yeah, you kind of have to do that. Well, no, you <laughs> don't have to do it, but yes, I did. Uh, I, I, I married a, a lady from Ballon, Margaret Gittins from Ballon, in uh, 83. And uh, we had two sons, and we're, we're still going strong, thank God. Good. We're both retired now, so we're both wondering if it'll be a week sometime where we can get a few days off. That's that's <laughs> where soon. that's where it'll be. I'm looking at sometime in March as a possibility. Yeah. After that, it'll go to June, most likely. Yeah. Very good. Well, look, Andy, thanks very much for coming on and uh, yeah. It's a pleasure, Odile, and I hope there's some little bits in there that help somebody else along their career. And I think if you like what you're doing, go with the flow. That's my advice. And uh, be prepared to talk to people. That's the last thing I would say. Talk to everybody. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.